Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At MidwayUSA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Rich and Tory came onto my radar when I watched a presentation by Rich specifically that was titled Social identities of U.S. college students reveal potential conflict and common ground for wildlife conservation. Yes, it seems like a very long fluted title, and yes, he is a PhD student, and yes, this is for an academic conference, actually the Wildlife Society Conference in 2021. But really what his research and Tory's research got into was understanding hunting approval on the college campus level. They interviewed 17,000 college students and really got an understanding of why would they approve of hunting how do they view hunting and it really comes down to this idea of altruism being the benefits and consequences of the action versus egoism which is celebrating the action as you can imagine this is a phenomenal conversation between Tory and Rich that are just extremely knowledgeable in the space and are passionate about the work that they've done. So just absolutely enjoy it and I hope it plants some seeds and makes your mind think outside of the box. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name is... Is... <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So, 
I don't know who I posed this question to, but I'll just come right out the bat. Out the bat? Out the back? Off the bat. Oh, it's too early already. I've had off the bat. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. I need people to guide me off the bat. What the heck is an altruistic hunter? Yeah, that's a great question. Can uh, you define that? I think you can. I think I think you'll find many altruistic hunters. Um, you know, when I think about I, typically now, you'd associate that with maybe a newer generation of hunter who thinks more about conservation and their role in ecology. But as I've worked with even these kind of the old guard hunters in these wildlife clubs, uh, I, I can think of one in particular. He's always stopping to show me pictures on his phone of interesting things he's found um, in these areas that they have a particular wildlife refuge around this club that they've built, you know, about a turkey he saw or about uh, a native species of plant that he's found um, that he thought was really interesting. And I think a lot of hunters are drawn to hunting because of this appreciation for nature, this connection to nature, and they want to participate in it as a hunter consumptively, but also have this passion or love for nature um, that comes through in these altruistic ways of wanting to promote habitat conservation and wanting to look out for the welfare of these species. I don't know, Tori, you, you might want to add to that definition. No, I think, I think you covered it really well. Um, I would say maybe um, altruistic hunters is, is like altruistic might just be a new term that more of us are starting to use, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily a new concept. Like Rich is saying, um, I don't come from a hunting background at all. I got into the hunting community a little bit in undergrad, but definitely during my graduate research. And I, I came in with biases about who hunters were and what they acted like and, and their wildlife attitudes. And the more and more I met hunters from all different walks of life, the more I realized, wow, these people really care about conservation. They really know the land that they're on. They care about not just the game animals, but they care about the habitat. They care about the whole ecosystem. Um, so even though Rich and I talk about kind of a, a new generation of altruistic hunters, these young people who um, are really starting to get into hunting maybe because they want ethical meat or maybe because they want to help control white-tailed deer populations. I would say the old guard are also altruistic hunters in their own way. Um, that was just not necessarily the narrative that we gave them until now, I guess. No, you're, you're nailing the point, Tori, because I literally, I gave a keynote presentation in South Africa about let's, switch our focus from the action of hunting to the benefits and consequences of the action of hunting. And the thing that like, I will take home and I could end Blood Origins today is the old God came up to me. The old God being guys that have been a PH in South Africa since the 60s. Said to me, ah, I get it. I get what we should be saying now. I get what we should be representing ourselves as now. And it was like mind-blowing that these guys that didn't grow up in a social media age, that didn't grow up in this sort of high-velocity, um, high-accelerating type medium that we live in, that is social media and everything that's buzzing around us, actually get it. That they, like, we need to put this 
this message of us forward. We need to show the things that we do every single day because in the past they didn't feel like it was necessary, you know? So, Tori and Rich, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast, man. I am, I, I can't wait for this rabbit hole discussion, <laughs> which I'm sure we will we'll attack with vigor. Yeah, but how about we do this? How about we just uh, let you introduce yourself? So, uh, Tori, let me let you introduce yourself first. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, I'm Victoria Veyer. Please call me Tori. I'm a former grad student at NC State University um, under Dr. Lincoln Larson studying R3 and human dimensions of wildlife. I currently work for the Department of Natural Resources for the state of Maryland as the R3 coordinator. Outstanding. And I'm Rich von Furstenberg. And Rich? Yep, a third-year PhD student. Um, and my research focus is on creating a more inclusive Future for hunting and wildlife conservation. And my advisor is Tori's. A more uh, inclusive. And, and a more inclusive. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so my advisor is Lincoln Larson, um, who is also Tori's. And so we have a lot of connection through our projects and data, and that's that's our relationship to one another. What does a more inclusive future look like for hunting, Richard? That's a great question. I'm so, so glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Tori, do you want to? Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, Log on to MidwayUSA.com. Talk about the trends in hunting since that was kind of your focus and, and, and then I'll hop, I'll piggyback. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, Robbie, correct me if I'm wrong. You are kind of reaching an audience who don't come from hunting backgrounds, correct? Yeah, we, we, we almost touch a very, very diverse audience. We have audiences that is <clears throat> that are hunters. We have audience that have started just started hunting. And then we have an audience that listen to us because they love the kinds of discussions that we have on a subject that they may not partake in, uh, but they have interest in. Cool. So I will start as much at the beginning as possible without boring everyone with, with the weeds. Um, but I would say from our research, we know that hunting participation in the U.S. peaked in about the 1980s, uh, where about 17 million Americans considered themselves hunters. And that's about 8% of the U.S. population. So even in the 1980s, the vast majority of Americans are not considering themselves hunters. But in stark contrast to today, where only 15 million people hunt, so not a huge difference in number, but that's the percentage of the population has been cut in half. So when we did our research, we found that only 4% of Americans, or I guess, hold on, I'm going to back up for a second. Um, not our research directly, research that I used to guide my yeah. research from yeah. the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said that around 4% of Americans hunt. Um, around 2018, I would say. Um, so except for this slight uptick that we saw during the pandemic, which mm -hmm. is probably unlikely to last and 
likely due to people um, not being able to spend time in populated areas inside. What else do you have to do but go outside and do outdoor recreation? Um, the decline in hunting has been pretty steady. Um, and one major reason for that is demographic change, right? So hunters traditionally tend to be white males from rural areas. Um, even today, about 90% of hunters are male. 97% of hunters are white. Um, mm -hmm. And this clearly does not reflect the larger American population, right? Um, let's throw in the fact that now the vast majority, I think it's over 75% of Americans live in cities or urban centers. It's easy to see why hunting is a pastime that's on the decline and why a super rapid revival is unlikely. Um, and really the question that Rich and I dive into is why should we even care? Why is hunting important? And why are so many people trying to work so hard to revive it? Um, and I come at my research from kind of three three main, um, I guess, subsets of why hunting is important. One, we have that American heritage and culture. It's been a core recreation activity in America since um, America's mm -hmm. colonization, founding, however you want to mm -hmm. say it. And it's been a really important identity for a lot of people. Uh, so it can be important for that reason. But especially as America becomes more diverse, that um, that subset of hunting is not as important and doesn't resonate with a lot of people. Most people aren't hunters, right? But we know that hunting can still be valuable as a tool for conservation, as a tool for population management, especially in the absence of large predators that uh, we have exterminated years ago. Uh, we need to control overabundant wildlife populations. Where Rich and I are in North Carolina, that's largely white-tailed deer. Without mm -hmm. hunting, we have a lot more uh, human-wildlife conflict, vehicle-wildlife conflict. Um, and then on top of that, perhaps the most important reason for my current job is that hunting forms the backbone of wildlife conservation funding uh, in the U.S. So for those three reasons, we need to find ways to broaden this base of support for hunting. Um, our natural resource management agencies, our state agencies need hunting dollars to do all kinds of conservation work, not just game management work. Um, but right now, with only 4% of people hunting, conservation funding is going down. We need ways to get more voices to the table to support conservation as a whole, not just hunting. So Rich, if you want to take it yep. away and talk about kind of that diversity piece, I think I, I got the background in there. Sure. Yeah, no, that was great. And so Robbie, when, when I think of making it more inclusive, um, or we as a research group think of making hunting more inclusive and wildlife conservation, um, it's both to broaden, like a cons uh, Tori was talking about conservation funding. We want to broaden that base of participants because right now, these baby boomers, these white male baby boomers who primarily were these hunters in the 1980s are aging out of hunting and it's leaving behind this vacuum, right? And if we don't replace right. uh, this vacuum with new younger hunters from more diverse backgrounds, um, from a financial perspective, we're, we're kind of like still betting on this group that is fading out. Um, then there's also the moral imperative of 
you know, this is something that we want to be available and welcoming hunting and conservation to all racial and ethnic um, groups, minorities. Also, um, you know, in terms of gender, we want more women to be involved in hunting, involved in conservation, in these agency positions, making these decisions. And so the more representative we can make both hunting and conservation, the more sustainable both will be going forward and the more relevant they'll be. And we're experimenting with this somewhat in, in my PhD program. We're participating in Academics Afield, which is a program that takes college students out hunting, provides mentorship, teaches them about the co connection to conservation. And these are students who have typically no family that hunts, no mentorship. And this is really the avenue to give them that skills and knowledge so that they can try hunting. And this year, the program mm -hmm. expanded to include eight HBCUs around the Southeast. These are historically black colleges and universities so that we can both understand their behaviors and perceptions around hunting. Are there particular barriers that we don't understand as predominantly white people in the hunting world? Um, are there benefits that might be different between these groups? These are the things that we study as conservation social scientists looking at the, the human uh, perceptions and behaviors around hunting. And, um, and I think the better we understand these social dynamics around hunting and conservation, the better we can navigate the future going forward and make sure that we're relevant, right? That these, that these things do resonate sure. with newer audiences. Mm -hmm. Tori, you started by, um, you actually started this conversation by saying you didn't start as a hunter. Um, you came in with inherent biases tied to hunting. What were those biases? Great question. I'll try not to reveal all of my my family's personal information on here, but uh, to take it all the way back to the beginning, I grew up in Rockville, Maryland. It's a DC suburb, um, and it is like the classic classic suburbia. I would say I'm okay. like ten miles outside of DC. I didn't grow up going into DC a whole lot, but I mean, every school field trip was like a Smithsonian museum field trip. You go kind of 15 miles the opposite way, and you're in some some rural ag land. But again, unless it was for a sporting event or a field trip, we didn't really go out that way. I was I was in a suburban center, mm, um, mm. but I grew up hiking, kayaking, doing that type of outdoor recreation with my parents. That's what they were into. So that's how my brother and I uh, were kind of raised and getting into college age, I knew I wanted to do something with animals. I really liked science and I really liked working with animals, but I didn't know if I wanted to be a vet. I didn't know besides being a vet, what other, what other options there were for working with animals. So I went into right. undergrad as a biology major. Um, and I had, I went to Penn state, which is a very ag ag state. Sure, school. Sure. Yeah. Probably has a hook and bullet department, right? Yeah. So I, Mm -hmm. After I applied to get into biology, which is like the College of Science, not the College of, of Ag and Wildlife, I had asked my uncle, who was a professor at Virginia Tech, in their wildlife, um, I guess, department, should I do wildlife instead of biology? And he was like, oh, no, 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 that's not for you. Have, have you seen those guys? I mean, they're all rednecks <laughs> up, in the, up in the wildlife department. I do not think that's for you. You're not going to like that at all. So I did my first two years in biology. I was stuck with a lot of pre-med kids that um, 
they were they were great. We got along really well, but I always felt like there was something missing. I was like, these these people really want to be doctors. I wanted to do biology to work with animals. I think I'm missing something. I took my first wildlife class and I my mom loves this story. I walked out of my first class, I immediately called my mom and I was like, Mom, you'll never guess. They wore hiking boots to class. I think I found my people. <laughs> Uh, so that is how I got hooked into the wildlife world. And I changed my minor to wildlife and fisheries. Um, I started working at a wildlife and fisheries lab doing uh, reptile and amphibian research. I got really into because of wildlife class. I just like took one one wildlife class in college. And yeah, I met a bunch of rednecks and a bunch of people that don't own anything but flannel shirts. Uh, but again, through kind of these conversations and, and discussions in class, I was like, we have way more in common than not in common, right? Like we, yeah, you might, you might take the first day of deer season off of school and I don't, but the reasons we're, we're here in this classroom are exactly the same. We both really care about wildlife and we don't want to be sitting behind a desk when we get out of college. So um, I came into Penn State at least with, with some biases from my own family, admittedly, that hunters and wildlife folks are rednecks. They uh, just want to shoot and kill things. They are right. these crazy gun owners. Um, and yeah, just like some really controversial, politicized, biased views of what these these hunters are and the more and more I went to wildlife classes and I met hunters and I became friends with them became friends with these kids whether they were hunters or not like I said the more I realized we all have way more in common we all just want to care about care about conservation um and that's not to say I haven't met some hunters that I don't see eye to eye with there are definitely sure those kids that turned me off a little bit um, as a woman in this field, there there's still a lot of sexist comments that that go kind of unnoticed to the male eye or the male ear. And as the woman in the room, I have to be the one to say, hey, that's that's not cool. Do you realize how that could mm-hmm. affect me down the road? Or um, mm-hmm. I don't want to hear you talk about your wife or your girlfriend like that. That's not appropriate. Um, so there are things that I, I don't love, but I think you get that with every group of people, right? So by sure, and large, the hunters I met were were really, really knowledgeable scientists, and that's what made me stick around. Was like you know more about the woods than I will ever know, and you know it because you have been out there since you were seven years old, and I can learn from you just by walking with you in the woods. It doesn't matter whether I'm carrying a firearm myself and whether I'm hunting myself, we're going to walk through the woods together. And you can tell me what kind of tree that is. You could point out this, what this berry is and what kinds of animals can eat it and what can't. And like just the vast amount of knowledge that I can learn just by hanging around with these people was really, really eye-opening to me. Mm. Well, that's the whole premise of Blood Origins. We've We've interviewed 71 different hunters in a very emotional, very uncomfortable kind of scenario for people who just have no, have a very skewed opinion of who a hunter is that are biased 
to say, here, let me show you. Here's 71 different people from different walks of life to the, inclusive, to the inclusivity that we are talking about. All, you know, multiple gender, um, you know, diversity of genders, diversity of ethnicities, diversity of nationalities, diversities of backgrounds, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever, you may not have met her yet, um, but we interviewed a South Korean adoptee in the first like four or five episodes of Blood Origins. And um, she now is, she was adopted, adopted to a single mother, her and her sister uh, in Michigan. And uh, the, the, the household was very much like an equestrian household. It wasn't an outdoor hunting sort of model, very similar to you, Tori. Uh, she undertook a master's in which she was looking at um, sort of the philosophy of, of some sort of argument. And in that, in that realm, she got a scholarship to go on a first-time deer hunt. And she took it. And today, she's the R3 coordinator for NWTF in the state of Ohio. And uh, if my brain would allow me to recall her name, I'd tell you her name, <laughs> but I cannot right now. <laughs> um, Rich, did you did you start a hunter? That's a great. Always a hunter. Yeah. So I love I love thinking about my first time hunting. I did not start out a hunter. Uh, both of my parents, you know, I grew up. They were hippies. Um, no fire. Uh, my dad did have some firearms in the house, but they were. It was like an old Chilean Mauser and some other rifle put away in a closet, you know, but it wasn't something that my parents did, um, hunting or grandparents. But I had some neighbors down the street, uh, who I met through, um, Boy Scouts and they had, this was in Houston, Texas. They had a, uh, family rice farm out near, it was in, in Wharton, Texas, that coastal plain area. And they took me out goose hunting and that was, and, and we would also hunt dove. But that was kind of a pivotal experience for me around, I was probably 13 years old. But I remember standing there in the mm. dove field, seeing the sunset. And in Texas, you can see you know, these big sunsets that I miss being out here in Carolina. But I remember thinking, like, I don't, I, I want to stay in this moment with my feet here, with this gun in my hands, watching the sunset forever. Like, that, I wanted that moment just to last forever. And I remember thinking that at, you know, whatever, 13 or 14 having only hunted a few times and kind of having that transformative feeling of, um, I don't know if it was the independence, the connection to nature. It was just this kind of like a, an experience I couldn't really put words on at that age, but I still can think of that memory and the feelings come back. And I became passionate about hunting and fishing kind of independent of my family, but having these friends kind of bring me in sideways into hunting and from there, I found mentors on my own because it was just something that I, I felt really strongly connected to. Um, and I feel in the work that I do, I get to relive that by bringing in new hunters and seeing that excitement for them. And of course, it doesn't resonate with every student. But with some, you see that kind of that that fire, get, you know, take light. And I and I still feel those old feelings that I felt. And I found that there are a certain subset of hunters who mentor who also feel that way, that, that that almost does it for them as much as hunting on their own, is seeing it kind of switch on for somebody new. And it's a really special moment. So I didn't grow up a hunter, but I, I am now. But also, I think the scientist in me is very empathetic to those that don't hunt or are skeptical of it or have misgivings about it. So I'm I'm able to hold all the feelings of 
you know, from the outside, you know, considering those perspectives of like, you know, this doesn't make sense. Why would you want to hurt an animal? I, I can feel those feelings, empathize with them, but it's still something that I, I find myself attracted to. And that, that brings me a lot of benefit and makes me feel connected to nature. It makes me feel like a part of the animal world that I feel I belong to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lady's name is Joanna Dot, by the way. Ah. Um, I remember her name. So to your point, Rich, I think this is the crux of the matter. You couched yourself at the beginning as a social scientist. Tori, I don't know if you would consider yourself a social scientist or not. I think so, um, yeah. And social science has had a bad rap in that it's not real science. Ah. It's pseudoscience, <laughs> right? Exactly, Rich. I've, exactly. I've done, I've, so <laughs> I want to I just hop in for a second here because I spent – Almost, oh, I did spend 15 years as a molecular biologist doing quote-unquote real science, right? I would say nothing is, <laughs> nothing is as rigorous as social science, to, to my, uh, being that I'm having to work through my dissertation. It is, there are a lot of guardrails and a lot of scrutiny um, that I, I did not expect, uh, because I too had those same suspicions that it's a soft science. It's, it, I found that to be anything but the case, but... Uh, but please go on. I just wanted to hop in and, and I have to defend. Our, uh... No, and, I, and I'll pose a very simple question sure. to you because you just talked about it. And Tori, you can, once Rich finishes, please add your, your, what you think onto it. You said you have feelings. A lot of people associate social science with feelings. That we have to listen to people's feelings. When those feelings aren't couched in facts... And the ecological side of the science argument is typically couched in facts. So as a social scientist, as, as, as calling yourself a social scientist, as being in the world as a PhD candidate now as a social scientist, how do we address that? How do we address the legitimacy of someone's feelings versus the truth? Robbie, I have one quick question. Uh, how long you want this episode to be? Because I think uh, Rich and I can can talk another three hours just on this question if you want. But yeah, Rich, let's take rock it and away. roll. Okay, well, uh, let's rock and roll. I would say that the, that somebody's feelings are the truth uh, for one. So I, I don't see them as separate things. Uh, you know, if you say facts versus feelings, uh, uh, there are certain things that are, you know, these these metrics by which we all can agree on around like physics and these hard sciences, right? Like a meter is a meter is a meter. Um, a gram is a gram. But but I would say that most decisions are not made based on facts. They're made they're ba based on values and emotions and these things that we can measure. We call them latent constructs. These things that you can't see, but but social scientists are actually very good at measuring them um, through. I mean, these surveys may look pretty uh, pedestrian to most people, but they're carefully constructed to measure. These different feelings, right? So your attitudes or beliefs about a certain topic, we can create very good um, testable measurements of these things, and they do matter. Um, if you look at, I mean, we uh, there was recently this Wildlife Society meeting in Spokane, Washington, and this group Wildlife for All was going to be there, and there was this kind of hubbub about what that meant for hunting. Not were supposed to be there, were there. Yeah, Let's yeah, be honest, were there, right? It was like the showdown in Spokane. I forget what that, that headline from Andrew McKean was, but it was something something pretty – you could see that the emotions were heightened. Um, 
and what happens in a practical sense is that when fear takes over and we start forming these, uh, we start kind of attributing these negative characteristics to another identity group, it becomes very polarizing. We silo and you get to this point where you really can't collaborate or come out with a positive outcome because you've, you know, you've put your fists up and you're ready to fight and, and emotion and feelings matter a lot there in terms of, you know, accomplishing, um, uh, I would say any goal that would benefit conservation, it kind of forecloses the opportunity for collaboration. And so as social scientists, what we want to do is kind of um, navigate those waters, right? We want to identify these points of conflict and help these group groups avoid them and then find places of agreement and, and try to emphasize those. So I would say we almost kind of want to be the therapist for these groups and negotiate a resolution that will benefit wildlife and, and habitat management and, you know, I would say further conservation by finding these places of overlap that may not be obvious when our emotions are heightened and we're fearful of the other group. Tori, I think the issue with Wildlife for All attending the TWS meeting was that a lot of people, and me included, I'll stay that right now and you can change my mind, there is no overlap. There is no overlap in an organization that is that his sole mission in life is to remove hunting, regardless of the science that shows that it's a sustainable wildlife management tool. So, so, so how? Explain it to me. I will let Rich take most of the, the TWS drama just because I was not there in person, so I don't feel like... or. I was not involved directly, so I don't feel like the best expert to sure, speak. But sure. in general, I would no, say, general. again, there is there is more overlap than than we think. But in our silos, we we get stuck with these like minded people. So by and large, day in and day out, in my current job through grad school, I spend every day with lifelong hunters they were born into hunting families they had a firearm in their hands at five years old and they do not understand why anyone would be opposed to hunting for any reason whereas in my personal life coming from a non-hunting background i spend a lot of time with folks who do not understand why anyone would want to go hunting they are pretty anti-gun folks so it's not even just about hunting it's about being anti-gun and then there's the layer of taking the life of an animal and being potentially morally morally against taking the life of another thing um, but uh, i think why people like rich and i are are really good at what we do is because we're good liaisons between these two worlds as mm -hmm. someone who mm -hmm. didn't grow up hunting rich as someone who found hunting on his own without that familial support we are both able to see both sides and i in my personal life again i've seen some really cool intergenerational uh mm -hmm. learning going on so i have come home from a mentored hunt that i've been filming and i've shown my parents pictures of of deer that have been harvested and there is a 
pretend uh in one case like a woman in this photo who is smiling so huge but also has tears streaming down her face amazing and it's her first deer ever it was her first hunt sure. ever and she went out with a mentor she met through a program not her own family she doesn't have any support for this at home and i show my parents a selfie that i took with this woman and her deer and my parents immediately go oh poor deer and it gives mm. me the chance to sit down with them and go, okay, I see why that was your first reaction. But let me explain to you like, why she has tears on her face. Let me explain to you the 20 minutes of letting the adrenaline come down and this really emotional experience she had and how she wants to teach her kids to put food on the table themselves rather than just going to a grocery store. Like, It takes a lot of time and effort to have these conversations but they do matter and there is common ground we mm -hmm. just have to mm -hmm. have liaisons like rich and i that can um pull away from the extremes and see that there is a little bit of overlap in the middle mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. i hope um, rich i get that tori that was an amazing explanation but back to wildlife for all, and that it doesn't seem like they are interested in compromise. There is no, and I think, I won't say much more. Just to me, it doesn't seem like they have, there is an overlap there in my mind. Right. So I talked to them a bit. They had a happy hour at the meeting. Um, but before that, I, was, I wasn't sure what to expect to find. Because I, you know, I, of course, mm. as a hunter, I'm fearful, like, well, are they... Are they going to come out? You know, when I try to have a conversation with them, how's that going to go? Are they going to uh, just be really angry? Are they going to criticize me for hunting? Like, how's this going to, what's this going to look like? Um, because I was hoping to have like a, I think a really friendly conversation, kind of share our views. And, and that, that is what ended up happening. But, but I would say that part, that, that what you described about feeling, after I'd read those articles, I, I think I was kind of, I was expecting to be browbeaten as a hunter. I didn't find mm. that to be the case, but I did find a bit of a paradox in some of the, the statements. So, I mean, I think they, they said they are not mm. anti-hunting. Kevin Bixby, the, the, the head, told me that. And even in his intro to his talk at TWS, he said, I'm a hunter. Or he said, I, on occasion, I hunt and I eat meat. And he opened his talk with that. But then when you read their, talk, their bullet points in terms of their paradigm shift, it does say that they want our three efforts to become irrelevant and abandoned. Um, they do believe in hunting for altruistic reasons. I think that aligns with motivations of younger hunters. They want a broader base for conservation funding. I agree with that. Uh, you know, perhaps like a tax like Missouri has that can add some stability to conservation funding. I think those are points that we can agree on. Um, but when I talked to them personally, they did seem to, to have like an anti R3 slant. I think. I don't know that 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 they completely understand um, the the nuance of our three efforts, like the work that we're doing to make it more inclusive. I try to emphasize that, you know, if this is important work yeah, yeah. from a moral standpoint, not even related to ecology, um, but just in terms of making outdoor recreation more equitable in American society. Um, but I, I I think getting to your point, that what what they want is like a, either wildlife commissions to be outright done away with or have them reshaped to become more democratic and represent this 96% of non-hunters. Um, and I don't know that, that hunting would look the same if that were to happen. 
in the sense that uh, hunting definitely wouldn't be prioritized the way it is now. And and so, as a hunter, does that scare me? Well, we're certainly sure. seeing that shape out in Washington State, where your the TWS meeting was right. The commission now <clears throat> is is for the majority over fifty percent is made up of commissioners that are non hunters, and they are certainly influenced by their bases, one of which is Wildlife for All. Um, and we've already seen a change. Spring bear hunting in the state of Washington is no longer and is likely not to become... And here's where the, the nuance is. Recreationally, they, it's off the table. Management-wise, it may be back on the table. And management-wise for timber, management-wise for elk and deer population, sustainability. And so to your point, it's a rhetoric thing. It's a, it's a reshaping of the narrative. And as, as hunters, maybe we should be okay with management hunting versus recreational hunting. I think being- Because at the end of the day, the outcome's the same. Right. Yeah, and I think Rich, Rich brings up a lot of good things, and I like the way you kind of summarized it Robbie um I think there there's almost um a language barrier a little bit I think some of these groups again I don't know specifically about wildlife for all and this scenario that you're talking about but other groups that Rich and I have interacted with I think some of them do seem very anti-hunting up front um and is some of that maybe a ploy to get non-hunting outdoor recreationists to join their group versus joining a hunting conservation group like there are there are a lot of ngos there are a lot of places you can be donating money and putting your efforts as like mm -hmm. an average american citizen who wants to care about conservation how like i think a lot of it is clickbaity right so oh no it has to yeah. be right because let's be honest when it comes to when it comes to the wildlife conservation game in America, from a, a wildlife for all, HSUS, PETA circle, defenders of wildlife circle, outside of predators, there is no money. Wolves, bears, any sort of predator is where the money's at. It's where you raise the money. And that is where the anti-hunting sentiment sits is that this is not something and it's a very it's a very easily politicized rhetoric that is used to generate a ton of money. Yeah. And and, and if I was on that side I would do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Money talks. Like I I hate saying that. I think I can speak for a lot of wildlife biologists and scientists, people in academia and conservation in general. Like we didn't get into these fields because we wanted to 100%. be rich and make money uh we we genuinely care about conservation and and we want to see a more sustainable conservation landscape in this country but unfortunately money talks in order to have an r3 position or realistically almost any position in our state wildlife agencies that manage habitat for outdoor recreation and for game and non-game species we need money from hunting and guns and ammo sales 
in the way our system is set up right now. So things that Rich and our advisor, Dr. Larson, um, and I like to discuss is, is there a, a different way we could be funding conservation where hunters sure. still get to hunt? That can still be a outdoor recreation source in America. You will never have to give up the hunting that you are participating in now, but let's also find new ways to fund conservation. So this 96% of people that don't hunt are also being heard at the table. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's real, like, that's a big change. We have never, we have never funded conservation that way in this country. And it is completely understandable that hunters would be scared of that change and think that I'm losing my land. I'm losing a uh, bag limit or like uh, tightening bag limits. I'm loosening part loose. Excuse me. I'm losing part of my season. Like that is absolutely a scary change. And I can see why hunters would want mm -hmm. to push back against any sort of change because for the past hundred, 200 years, they have been the primary voice at the table and have been given priority in the conservation landscape mm -hmm. room. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. a scary change, but also mm -hmm. if we have 90%, 96% of the country that doesn't hunt, doesn't it make sense to hear a little bit of how they think conservation should be handled? Um, and I agree to always go back to the science. We need hunting for management. Sure. But like you said, does, do we then, um, I guess, market hunting more as just management hunting rather than trophy recreational hunting um mm. i lost Rich, my train of thought a little bit there but no 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 yeah i think you i think you laid it out perfectly rich in your experience in the research that you and tori have done is that the path forward i mean i think certainly emphasizing i would say that the in terms of management this this role of hunting and maintaining ecological balance has a lot of appeal to these newer hunters. These, like, I would say the demographics that typically have not been a part of hunting um, and to non-hunters, I think, you know, in terms of reasons for approval, for non-hunters, it's this, these altruistic motivations. So, you know, ecological balance, connection to nature, these things. Um, but also, um, you know, connection to food is, is a priority. And I think these are, rec these are things that Wildlife for All has even said that they understand at least the connection to food um, so I think playing to those, those motivations is important. I think too, um, you know, hunting approval is not something that hunters should take for granted. It's not going to maintain itself. And I think that you can feel, you know, that you're doing something virtuous and you don't have to, def you don't have to think about how you portray yourself, but you really do. And when you are on Facebook posting a picture of a bobcat and a leg trap, or doing something stupid on TikTok like that matters, and I think we, the hunting community, needs to be mindful of how they're present, how they're, um, how they present to the outside world, and how we don't want the, I think, the good hunters, right, the actions of the conservation-minded hunters, to be lost in, I would say, some of the negative portrayals, and for these, uh, I, th I think that that it shouldn't be taken for granted that it is like a garden that has mm -hmm. to be tended um, in terms of hunting approval, we have to put that conservation um, work, you know, in, in the spotlight and make sure that it's understood like the role of hunting in terms of management. 
I think that has to be emphasized. And I think a lot of times what you see is more like, you know, big buck management and things like the, the, this focus on hunting that's more around trophy hunting and less around the conservation aspects mm-hmm. and, and maintaining ecological mm-hmm. balance or connection to food doesn't, it doesn't sell as well, I think. And so it doesn't get on the front of magazines, but I think that's important. Tori, the, the research that first started this conversation between me reaching out to Rich and, and Rich can allude to when I first reached out to, I guess I, you know, I came out of left field and I think I felt a little like of Rich, like, oh, I don't know who, who this guy is. I, you know, do I need to <laughs> see if I want to chat with him? But what does the research say? What is, did your research say about hunting approval and where you are going to see the most approval around hunting in this bigger demographic space? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm trying to look at the numbers on my other screen as we speak so I can get them exactly right. But overall, approval for hunting is very high. So even students that identify as non-hunters approve Give us a little bit of context to the study. Give a little context to the study itself. Like who did you chat to? Who did you chat to? Another great question. Um, We (laughs) surveyed... Let me see. Um, With more than 17,000. We surveyed over 17,000 students, yeah, from a variety of um, schools across the country. So I believe we had 22 states, and most schools, they were large public – sorry, in most states, they were large public universities uh, with a random sample of students from those universities. So that means a variety of majors, a variety of – backgrounds. Um, we can break it down further. I can send you some numbers for the for the written description of this podcast as well. Um, but the the major findings of I guess uh, diversity wise, um, when we asked these 17,000 college students, would you consider hunting in the future? 50% of them right off the bat said, no, I'm a non-hunter. of them say, I'm already a hunter and I will continue hunting. About 3% said, I hunted as a kid and I am no longer interested in hunting. And our favorite number to talk about between Rich and I, 22% said, I have never hunted in the past, but I am interested in hunting in the future. Um, So yeah, in other words, that equates to millions of college students across the country who have no previous hunting experience and um, largely no social support for hunting either. So they don't have family that hunt. They don't have friends that hunt, but they are still really interested in trying it. So it's about finding that pathway into hunting for them, uh, which was the second part of my master's research and what Rich has continued on after my graduation. So this first study with the 17,000 college students was really, really exploratory. We wanted to know what do college students and college age people think about hunting and conservation in this country? Um, How many of them do just support hunting, but don't want to do it themselves? How many of them are curious about hunting? Why haven't they hunted in the past or why have they? And why did they stop? So for that 3% who are lapsed hunters, a lot of them um, 
uh, penciled in answers that are basically, I moved away for college. I moved to a more urban mm-hmm. area where it's not as easy to mm-hmm. hunt as where I grew up. Um, so yeah, I think there, from that exploratory study, there are really a lot of jumping off points. It feels like the tip of the iceberg. And it's really, really exciting to think that we do have a lot of young people in this country that are interested in hunting. When we ask them, what is your reason for approving of hunting? We also ask, what is your motivation to get into hunting? Um, These altruistic reasons, I hate to use the same word we've been saying all day, but these altruistic reasons really stood out. Um, Our 22% potential hunters said that they are really interested in ethical meat sources. They are really interested in helping ecosystems and preserving habitat. So if they can hunt to help the habitat as a whole and the ecosystem as a whole, that's important. If they can hunt so they don't have to buy meat at a grocery store, that's really important. They were not interested in getting a trophy animal. Um, A lot of them not even that interested in the social aspect of hunting that a lot of um, Mm -hmm. the old guard talk about of the, yeah, we sit around the campfire and we tell stories. Everyone, I think everyone does enjoy that. Like when presented with the opportunity to hang out around a campfire, but that is not a reason why these young people are getting into hunting. That is more of a byproduct, I would say. They are getting into mm-hmm. it because they want to help conservation and they want a sustainable future. Rich, what did the what did the the questionnaires tied to the approval of hunting say? Like when you asked them, did they approve of hunting, and if they did, why they were more in favor? Well, what did the results say there? So, so could, are you asking like what the survey question looked like, or okay? No, there's responses. So I'm, I'm the when you when you ask the question, do you approve of hunting? Let's start there. Simplistically, did you ask the question, and what was the response? Yeah. So you'll say, you know, so do we... you approve? Sorry, go ahead, Tori. No, you go, Rich. Okay. So you would ask, you know, one one question might be, do you approve of legal regulated hunting? And then it would say, you know, uh, like it would have a scale, a multiple choice scale to which degree they disagree or agree with that statement um or you know might say you know to what degree do you approve of hunting for food reasons you know meat reasons and so we have these different these different items so we can kind of break it down in terms of motivations or reasons for approval did you have anything to add and what were the results rich what were the results tori I'm trying to pull up the exact numbers, Rich. I don't know if you have them in front of in you. In terms of like the mean I rating, to... I mean, I, so the the results for and I don't remember the, the the approval overall the approval of overall uh, what we call like legal regulated hunting, which is a terminology I believe like Southwick and Associates uses. It was less than the general public. I think general public is roughly eighty percent. This was a little bit mm-hmm. lower, which I think you know may just reflect the fact that you have more urbanite students you know on these college campuses but it was still high but by far the highest mean rating in terms of approval were for again the altruistic reasons in which we we lump in like connection to nature um you know uh, keep maintaining ecological balance there are multiple survey question items that compose these these constructs and then um 
you know, the, these, the food reasons. So, you know, I want uh, meat where I like know the origin of the, you know, I know the, the source of the meat. Um, there are these different questions. So, but, but it was consistently meat in the ecological balance rated higher than trophy, you know, or the other egoistic reasons like spending time with family and friends, which I think mm. are things that you can't conceive of or conceptualize if you haven't been hunting. Um, it may be that, and, and I think everybody's hunting journey changes, right. As you progress, it may be that that social component becomes more important on the third or fourth hunt. I think there are certain types of hunting that until you do them, you don't realize how social they are like duck hunting, extremely social. You're in a blind with friends or family. You're having food or hot coffee together. You're being miserable together in the cold and wet. Um, and you know, and then there are being in a deer stand up in a tree by yourself is not particularly social. So I think, I think it's hard for them to understand what maybe even some of these questions mean. I think there's a lot of misinterpretation as to what trophy hunting is with a lot of these new students. When they see a mount on the wall, a shoulder mount, they assume that the rest of the deer was tossed out and the head was put on the wall instead of understanding that that meat was consumed. And this is a way that this hunter has memorialized the hunt. Um, so there are some misconceptions too, but, but getting back to your question, the highest approval was around food and maintaining ecological balance and the lowest approval or end reason for hunting was around trophy. Um, and, and, and like this social component of spending time with family and friends. So when I, you know, when I looked at the data and I looked at the research, what I, and correct me here if I'm wrong, Tori. It looked like what you did was you, in the 17,000 respondents, you actually classified them into four different categories. Correct. All right. Uh, there were the detached individualists, the consumptive conservatives, uh, conservationists, the appreciative conservationist, and the moralistic environmentalist. Uh, okay, wait. The, yeah. The, and this, Kid, was, this was the work that I did with Tori's data. So That's right. Yeah. And these were using identity items. So we asked them, you know, like, how strongly do you agree? Can you just quickly give us a, just a, a snapshot of who these, like, give us a, a look at, like, who this individual is for these four classes? Right. So, I mean, I think with when you have, like, a detached individualist, this might be, you know, more like, I would say the people I grew up with in Texas that were maybe uh, more individ individualist, like, more, I would say have this like independent, like an independence oriented mindset of kind of making their own way, um, not maybe seeing themselves as part of a community, uh, but, but very much loving being outdoors, guns, hunting, consumptive conservation okay. would be more of like a conservation minded hunter, maybe more focused on, okay. maybe more focused on hunting than second amendment rights. And then appreciative conservationists would be conservationists who don't hunt, but they know, they understand why this is happening. Or appreciate the value of it and then moralistic environmentalists would be more of like uh you know people who don't hunt don't really see the need to uh, be in a consumptive relationship with wildlife and and i'll say that these labels are being reworked and and i labels like this are whether it's like i'm using these labels or we talk about mutualists versus traditionalists they give us like a handle in terms of research to put like handle on this piece so we can hold it but sometimes they're actually harmful in the sense that they can be used as a cudgel either to kind of like uh demean another group or to or they foster prejudice or bias against a group and so sure these are labels i put on these groups to kind of like i think make sense of the data but um 
they're now being reworked because what we found is that we had individuals who are being represented in multiple identity groups and it was confounding this result. Um, so to put that in, in, yeah. in kind of lay terms, um, the, the, we, we would like to get to, I, I, some of these people are being overrepresented in the data. And so we have to rework it, but I do not think the conclusions of the data will change. Yeah. 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 What I liked about the data is this is to me, there was, and maybe this is the way that you set it up. To me, there was a very much a clear sort of to the left, the detached individualists and the consumptive cons conservationists were more pro-hunting individuals, right? Right. The ones on the right, uh, the appreciative, appreciative conservationists and the moralistic environmentalists were the typical is the is the field of individuals that we are targeting from a blood origins perspective right. the non-hunters not your classic anti-hunter but rather sit in this i don't know maybe not so much kind of scenario right, right. and so that was the data that i was fascinated about in terms of the hunting approval and so what you had and and I'll and I'll I'll sort of try to just graphically describe what I'm looking at in terms of the graph, and then you, Rich and, sure. and Tori, feel free to add things to it. But you had a hunting approval mean rating on. You have three graphs: a hunting approval mean rating, then you have a hunting approval altruism, and a hunting approval egoism. And what I was more interested in, I didn't really care about the people on the left um, because. They're all the same. They're all going to approve hunting. But I was more interested in seeing how the how the approval ratings changed between the altruistic question and the egoism question between these two groups. And interestingly enough, for both groups, hunting approval went up when couched in an altruistic scenario or whatever you couched it in into in your questionnaire in your in your question you survey. But when couched in an egoism perspective, both went down in terms of their approval. Right. Uh, it doesn't take a scientist to read that, read those graphs. But that, to me, was like to me when I again the first time I listened to your presentation, that to me was the one that stood out to me. I was like, okay, here's a key that we should be looking at to open more doors around the approval of hunting. Right. And this is 17,000 young people who will be voting adults, you know, or are voting adults, I should take that back, will be making policy, you know, um, their public opinion matters. Um, and so I think when you think of the future of hunting, this is telling you where it's, where it's headed and how you might want to frame your messaging to this, this kind of emergent audience. Um, and I'll say that, too, when we... I want to circle back to that potential hunter group. Tori talked a lot about motivations and reasons for approval, but the demographics of that potential hunter group, it is much more female. It was more, it was 60% female, these potential hunters. It was more than half of those potential hunters were non-white. And so there's this built-in diversity into these potential hunters on college campuses. And that 23% or almost a quarter of college campuses equates to 6 million college students in the U.S. who want to try hunting and are more diverse than hunters of the past and are very young. So when we talk about this problem of hunting's decline, this is why we're really looking at college students as a possible new audience that brings that diversity, brings, you know, like will force some equitability on hunting. And then also 
um, you know, I think has this more altruistic view of hunting, sees it as a playing a role in conservation. And I think hunters need to think about, and, and I would say hunter advocates need to think about how to message around these altruistic motivations of meat, you know, connection to their, their food source and also playing a role in ecological balance. Yeah, if I could just add a couple of things, I think we've touched on a couple of really important points. Rich, thanks for adding the diversity piece. I was trying to figure out how to get there. Um, so not only was our sample more, more diverse than what we've seen in studies of this nature in the past, uh, but it's really promising that that potential hunter group in particular is so diverse. So as land managers, wildlife managers, as scientists, as anyone who cares about hunting, we know we're not going to get every single person, right? There are always going to be some people that just will not participate in hunting, will not support hunting. So at, for our study, for the future <clears throat> excuse me, future projects we're trying to work on, we want to highlight that potential hunter group, that there is this subset of young people that are already buying into the hunting. They are already buying into what we're selling without a lot of social support. Um, so I think um, traditionally in the past, let's say 15 to 25 years, R3 in this country has really been based on anecdotal evidence. We don't have a ton of data-driven R3 work until the past decade, I would say. And that's that might be being generous. Um, there has been a lot of youth hunt events that states have been running for decades now. Um, those youth events are targeting really low-hanging fruit. Who's going to bring their kid to a hunting event with a state agency? A family who already hunts. That kid is already predisposed to at mm -hmm. least having a positive view of hunting and approving of hunting, even if they don't grow up to hunt themselves. So what good does an R3 event do that targets youth when the only people bringing their youth are people already in the hunting community? Um, but if we look at what states are saying about the success of their R3 programs, they're like, yeah, we run these R3 events. We have kids showing up. That's a successful R3 event. And there's not a ton of data showing that you have actually recruited and retained brand new participants to hunting. So I think that's that's what Rich and I get at a little bit in our research is here's this potential hunter group that was not already exposed to this hunting world. Um, and then the second point to that was, I think, Robbie, I don't know if you've said it before, but I've heard it time and time again in the hunting world. Hunting has a PR problem. Hunting is not a problem. It has a PR problem. Uh, the, I mean, and we said it, it's the way clickbait works. It's the way our news cycle works these days is anything political and controversial and drastic and extreme gets clicked on first. And that's how journalists make their money. That's how news sources make their money. So I get why we're there. Uh, but by and large, hunt, bad hunting gets the most media, right? When there's mm -hmm. tons of good hunting and hunters out there, they are not getting the press that would 
push these potential hunters to really invest in the hunting community and really change some of the non-hunters minds. So as an R3 coordinator, as a state agency, as a land manager, um, I think we should be a little less worried about losing our current cohorts of hunters by changing our, our trophy focused marketing messages. And we should be more focused on updating those messages to resonate with the young people that could be coming in in the future and that are of current voting age. Um, you're not going to lose current hunters by saying, by having your marketing messaging be more focused on meat and conservation. You are going to lose those new people, though, if, you, if we keep that um, trophy buck focused marketing messaging. With a guy that looks like me, well said, holding the deer, yeah, uh, white guy with goatee. <laughs> so, for those listeners, well yeah, said. I think the well said. I don't think we could end the podcast. Yeah, I, 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 Rich, do you have anything? Any other final words? Because that was, you know, what Tori said sort of nailed it on the head. Yeah, I, I just really quickly just to also increase representation in that PR, right? Of of women and more diverse participants in hunting to increase that sense of welcome to these new members of the hunting community and make them feel represented um, and, and like they matter. Yeah. I mean, not our research, but research in general shows that representation matters. So I think again, um, having a liaison like me between these two worlds is really important. And I don't mean to, to toot my own horn, this whole podcast. Um, and, and the research that we are all doing as a team is really important, but it does matter to have someone who looks like me. Um, I am white, but I am a female presenting person. I wouldn't say I always dress like what you think an ag or, hunter would dress like so having me stand up in front of a room of potential hunters definitely looks different than what these people expected um and and the representation does matter if you see yourself in a group of hunters i would feel more comfortable going into that group myself if i don't see myself represented i'm not necessarily going to go into that room and and try to make myself welcome so um, Robbie, thanks so much for having us on. I feel like Rich and I could talk talk your ear off forever. Um, and quick shout out to our advisor, Dr. Lincoln Larson, who has helped us in infinite ways to get to this point uh, and giving us the opportunity to speak here ourselves so he didn't steal the show. And <laughs> also I'll say thanks to our, our partners at North Carolina WRC because for as much as we like to trash on state agencies, sometimes they are a huge help and we couldn't, we couldn't put on the R3 events without them. And then I'll give one last shout out to backcountry hunters and anglers. They provide volunteers and food and prizes, and I could not do my work without their help as well. So thanks for having us. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, Robbie. No, and I um, big kudos to your professor in that me having been a professor in my past life and having graduate students underneath my wings, you are the greatest representation of him. And he is going to listen to this podcast and be extremely proud of both of you about how you hold yourself, how you speak, how you speak passionately about a subject, how knowledgeable you are about the subject. 
and it's a reflection on him. And uh, that's the greatest um, sort of endeavor that a professor can can undertake. His research is great, but seeing his his fledgling fledglings leave the nest and be great functioning members of society is the ultimate sort of cherry on the on the Sunday that he gets to make every every year. Man, we're gonna, so thank we're you, gonna Tori. have to cut this out before we send it to him, Rich. He's gonna get too big headed over there. <laughs> well, and I, and I think uh, you saying that Robbie speaks to what a what a great advisor you must have been. I think um, getting back to uh, the reason that that doing that hunting mentorship lights the fire for me. I think being an advisor, you know, seeing new people uh, chase their curiosity and kind of uh, and grow intellectually. Uh, you're you're kind of like an academic parent of sorts. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and Blood Origins, think of Blood Origins almost in that role now in on the on a global scale mm. for hundreds of thousands of people to like say, here, here's the here's the information. Right. Go forth and spread the seed. Yeah. You know? So no, thank you both of you, man. That was amazing. Yeah, and we'll you. certainly do it again. Okay. All let's right. let's do this again. Absolutely. I'm sure there's gonna be hot topics that come in the future that All right. we can bend each other's ear on. Yeah, stay tuned. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.